Um, I was in London a number of years ago, and they do a lot of street art there. Um, I, I don't, we don't have much of it here uh, in a lot of ways. Every once in a while you see something. But there are just performers, and you have a lot of tourists and a lot of people coming through. There's, so there's just performers and different art things everywhere. Uh, and one thing that I saw it was called 3D sidewalk painting. Has anyone heard of this or seen this? Um, why don't we just pull up a couple of these. So this is, this is a street. And like if you were to walk up to this street from this angle, you would see like the ground falling out and it looks like lava or whatever. And that's just something that someone went and painted. Uh, let's keep going. There's a couple more. There's so many of these. I, it was hard to pick. Um, this one's adorable. The girl's real. Like, so she's, you know, total 3D. It looks like the snowman is also real. Uh, and then everything around it. And those are all just people walking around. Um, but again, from this angle, everything is coming off of the ground. Let's keep going. Are there more? There we go. Uh, this is like a little uh, beach or a, a sidewalk next to the water, and it looks like these people are about to fall out of like a glacier and just down to their demise. Um, so if you were just a normal person walking down and all of a sudden all these things are happening, like you might question walking twice, right? Uh, now, if we keep going, I think we have one more. Um, this one's pretty sweet. People are just like floating to you. It was a taller picture, but like the waterfall looks like it's dropping like 300 feet, and they're just about to fall off the edge. Now, if you walk to the side... It looks like this. Like you, you, don't even, you don't even know what's going on there, right? It looks like someone spilt a bunch of paint, like it fell off the back of a truck. Um, and go, go one more. And this is like another side where, it's like, again, the water's about to fall off right there. You would have no idea that that's simulating a waterfall by any means. And Kelly, go one more back, actually. So there's a camera, like a tripod set up right here on the right. And the artists take that as the focal point. So if you're to stand in that one spot and you look out at the painting, you will see the painting the way you're supposed to see it. You will have the proper perspective. If you move right, if you move left, if you move to the other side or along the other sides, again, it looks like this. You have no idea what's actually going on. Kelly, we can go ahead and just go past those. Um, and we'll go to, the, yeah, just the, there we go. Um, so I think about this. And as we're, we're talking about perspective of seeing something and everything that it's meant to be, I think about our perspectives that we have in life. And I'm sure more often than not, we can feel like we are looking at things from the wrong angle. Why are things broken? Why is this happening in my life? Why is this not going the way it's supposed to go? And we can go on and on and on. And there are numerous problems in the world. I mean, I woke up to like Afghanistan's about to be taken over here shortly. Um, there was a, a mom on a computer call on COVID and her, her toddler got a hold of a gun and shot and killed her. Uh, I mean, you just like I woke up and you just could just go through the news over and over and over and there are just problems after problems after problems. And there's brokenness after brokenness after brokenness. And I think we can find ourselves in a place where we don't really know what to do with everything that is going on. However, our Creator oftentimes breaks through. And He will oftentimes break through specific people which have unusually open hearts and open minds. And they remind us that there is a whole other realm with very different values than the ones we find in our contemporary lives. They show us a whole different perspective. 
Now, this morning, we want to continue in Origins, where this, these, these four weeks, we have this week, we have one more next week, which Kim Files is going to close us out on. Um, and we're just looking and going back in the Old Testament, just grabbing four themes. And these themes are stories that have been told for millennia. Many of them, we don't actually know exactly when they started or even who started them. But throughout the time, eventually people started to turn them from oral tradition into writing. And what we have is our Old Testament. And the themes here, they are the oldest in human history. And as they get passed down, they do not only explain what is true for the earliest human beings that we know of, but they're also still true for us today. So this morning, we want to look at the prophets. There could be a lot of things that come to mind when you hear the word prophets. But people open to God in a way that they're commissioned to bring a different perspective. So let's continue with the Bible project and see what they have to say about the prophets. Ezekiel, Obadiah, Habakkuk. What do these names have in common? Well, they're three of the 15 prophets that have their own books in the Bible. And if you've tried to read these books, odds are you got lost in their dense poetry and strange imagery. But these books are super important for understanding the overall biblical story. So let's talk about how to read the prophets. When I hear the word prophet, I think of a fortune teller, someone who predicts the future. That's what being a prophet means in many cultures, but not in the Bible. While the biblical prophets sometimes speak about the future, they're way more than fortune tellers. How should I think about them? Well, they were Israelites who had a radical encounter with God's presence, and then were commissioned to go and speak on God's behalf. Like a representative. Right. And the thing that they cared about the most is the mutual partnership that existed between God and the Israelites. Right, the partnership. God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt and invited them to become a nation of justice and generosity that would represent his character to the nations. And so this partnership required all Israelites to give their trust and allegiance to their God alone. In the Bible, this partnership's called the covenant. But the leaders, the priests, the kings led Israel astray and they broke the covenant. And so this is where the prophets came in, to remind Israel of their role in the partnership. And they did this in three ways. First, they were constantly accusing Israel for violating the terms of the covenant. The charges usually include idolatry, alliances with other nations and their gods, and allowing injustice towards the poor. Ah, so like covenant lawyers. Right. And so second, the prophets called the Israelites to repent, which means simply to turn around. They spoke of God's mercy to forgive them if they would just confess and change their ways. But Israel and its leaders didn't change. Things went from bad to worse. And so that brings us to the third way the prophets emphasized the covenant. They announced the consequences for breaking it, which they called the Day of the Lord. Oh yeah, the apocalypse, visions of the end of the world. Well, sort of. The prophets were mostly interested in how God would bring his justice on Israel's corruption and on the violent nations around them. And while explaining these local events, they often used cosmic imagery. Cosmic imagery? Yeah, like Jeremiah. He described the exile of the Israelites to Babylon as the undoing of creation itself. The land dissolves into chaos and disorder, no light, no animals or people. Or Isaiah described the downfall of Babylon as the disintegration of the cosmos, stars falling from the sky, the sun going dark. For the prophets, when God acts in human history to bring justice, it's a day of the Lord. So the prophets aren't talking about the end of the world. Well, hold on. They're doing many things at once. The cosmic imagery shows how these important events of their day fit into the bigger story of God's mission to bring down every corrupt and violent nation once and for all. The prophets cared about the present and the future, and the cosmic imagery allowed them to talk about both at the same time. Got it. So no matter when you live, the day of the Lord's bad news if you're part of Babylon. But it's good news if you're waiting for God's kingdom. 
The day of the Lord pointed to the return of the exiles to Jerusalem. And once again, the prophets use cosmic poetry to describe it. They see a new Jerusalem, like a new Garden of Eden, with all humanity living at peace with each other and with the animals. And there's a new messianic king who restores God's kingdom in a renewed creation. Beautiful. So those are the three themes in the prophets. These prophets must have been very powerful, persuasive speakers. Well, some were, but others lived on the margins. They would often perform strange symbolic stunts in public to communicate their message. Like when Ezekiel lay in the dirt and built a model of Jerusalem being attacked by Babylon. Or when Isaiah walked around naked for three years as a symbol of the humiliation of exile. So did people pay attention to them? Not really. The stories in these books show how the prophets were a minority group mostly shunned by Israel's leaders. And their writings were a kind of resistance literature. Most people ignored them, that is, until their warnings came true in the Babylonian exile. And after that, people began to take their words seriously. Yes. The works of these earlier prophets were inherited by later unnamed prophets who studied these texts intensely. They're the ones who arranged the Hebrew scriptures as we know them, including the books of the prophets. Okay. And there's 15 books of the prophets. The big three are Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And then there's a collection of 12 smaller prophetic works unified on a single scroll. And in each of these books, you'll read stories about the prophets and their poems and visions, all arranged to show the cosmic meaning of Israel's history. How God would turn their tragic story of failure and exile into a story of hope and restoration for all nations. And it's that twin message of prophetic warning and of hope that the prophets cared about so much. And it's a message that we still need to hear today. Just a little bit going on there, yeah? How many have read the prophets or any of them? Yeah, well, okay, solid, good. There is a lot there and a lot more than what meets the eye. Um, they can be challenging to read through. I mean, that's why I'm thankful. And I, this kind of doesn't happen by accident. We create a series, and then as I go through Bible Project stuff, like they just have stuff that kind of keeps going aligning with it. Um, but I would encourage you to keep checking out the Bible Project as you're working through, especially the Old Testament, and just working through the, the depths of Scripture. They help bring things to life in such an explainable way. Um, now, I want to look at Isaiah real quick. So Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, this is uh, one of our prophets. Uh, 6 one says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. Now, you may have heard the ending of this ber- the, the verse before. Whom shall I send? Send me. We probably think about it as uh, overseas missions trips or reaching a certain people or God, just tell me where to go. Send me. I will go. God is calling us to go, but what Isaiah is really being called to here as a prophet is to go and confront people, 
to go and confront the powers that be, to go and confront the political leaders, to go and front, confront the religious leaders, to go and confront the people of God that have fallen away from the ways of God. And as we learn that that's what prophets did over and over and over again, we have prophet after prophet after prophet that was working between God and God's people, and they kept going to them and would, would correct them in areas of justice and worshiping other idols, and wanting to be like other tribes and nations, and falling from God. He's not saying, God, I just, I want to go change the world. He is so in awe of God that he is willing to go and risk his life, to risk his reputation, to risk everything he has ever known, to go and confront people. The life of a prophet, calling out injustice, calling to turn the ways from the ways of living apart from God. I wonder how you and I would respond to an Old Testament prophet today. I mean, just picture, picture him just like walking in here, like he's naked, right? It's like two and a half years, still got like six months left, and he's like naked trying to like get our attention that like our kingdom is going to fall. There's other ones who would go and do these dramatic acts. Uh, who was it? Solomon, I think, throws his, his hair up uh, and starts cutting it with knives to actually symbolize what's going to happen to them as a people if they do not change their ways. And you go on and on and on. We even see Jesus picking up a prophetic act and flipping a table in the temple. How would we respond today? Someone challenging the norm. Someone calling us to justice, calling us to a deeper life with God and with others. And for all these prophets, we can look back, and I think it's easier to read them as champions. They were champions for the people, and man, they're they just getting it. They would be like the people that we want to tag along with and be friends with. You know, they got the paparazzi following them. Maybe they have holidays after their names at some point, right? Like everything is going well, but no, it's the complete opposite, they are on the margins. They are actually risking their lives. They are threatened for everything that they are choosing to do. Because each one experienced God in a way that oftentimes it said they had fire in their chest. And not like the excited kind, but like the fear and trembling kind. And even as we work through this one, he has this vision of God and on his throne and everything, and he says, Woe is me, like I am not good enough. I have encountered you, God, and I am a sinner. I have fallen short. And that's where he gets to a point saying, God, I've experienced you, and I, I will do anything. Just tell me to go, and I will do it. But in regard to who we might think the prophets are, we know that that was not the case. Because it wasn't until years later, after a lot of their prophecies of fallen kingdoms happened, that people actually started to take them seriously. And then prophets later would actually grab the, the, the writings earlier of those prophets and say, wow, they were actually onto something here. I wonder if in the moment, it's the fact of being confronted that makes receiving the word of the prophet challenging. That the people were feeling so confronted, they were feeling so exposed, they were feeling challenged, they were feeling called out, they did not know another way of what they were doing. They felt so confronted that they weren't willing to change, that they were not, they were not willing to accept it. They were not willing to see a different perspective. You know, Martin Luther King Jr., one alive, 
a number of different times, the ratings on him of people actually accepting him and what he was up to, two-thirds to three-quarters of our country despised him. Absolutely despised what he was up to. Did not like him as a man, did not like his message, did not like the confronting that he was bringing. And I think it's easy for us to think, man, if I was there, I would have I been right there marching with him. Right, I, I would have been all for it. We go all the way back to the prophets. Of course, I would have followed along with them. Like, look at them. They were right. Man, they were standing up for the widow and the poor and the orphan and the foreigner. Yeah, absolutely. But I think if we read it that way, I think we miss the point. I think we miss the point, even looking at MLK, that his, his, his largest oppressors, or those against his message, were people who were white. And not only was it people who were white, but it was oftentimes religious leaders that were white. When a man is coming with a message to confront the culture of the day, to confront the powers to be, to confront the religious leaders, to confront the people of God in regard to racial inequality, systemic injustice, police brutality, I mean, you go on and on and on. Right? It's easy to think, man, I would have been right there. But would you? Would the message that he was bringing confront you so much that actually you may not have. And I wonder if it would have been the same with the prophets. Because the vision of the prophets was confronting. And I don't know about you, but I don't like confrontation. I certainly don't like being confronted, right? It's uncomfortable. I don't want to be confronted on things. I think I'm right 99% of the time. Right? I mean, go on and on and on. Like, it disrupts comfort. It disrupts the things that I want to be doing and the things that I think I should be up to, right, in any form and shape of it all. But I wonder if confrontation is an invitation to transformation. I wonder if confrontation is an invitation to transformation. That What if the vision of the prophets, the visions that can be so confronting to us, what if they were viewed as invitations to transformation? But there's a juxtaposition here that's challenging for Isaiah. In verse 9, it goes on. He said, after he's like, hey, I'll go. Tell me where to go. Then God says, go and tell this people. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. We'll play on words here. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, it's Isaiah, for how long, Lord, he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. Israel's call to confront people at this point is without hope. This is the demise of Israel. As he goes and proclaims his vision, Israel essentially, when he's saying their, heart, their, their, their hearts have hardened, they have eyes but they cannot perceive, they have ears but they cannot understand, they have gone too far, that no matter what is said, no matter what is happening, they will not turn around. So for you and I, what changed? Like, if we look at the story of the prophets, we look at them over and over and over and over again confronting the people of God. 
And all it does is over and over and over, it leads to the demise of Israel. They fall short over and over and over. What changed? How are you and I, how are we here today as a people of God? What changed? Someone's got the answer. It's that like, if you don't know the answer, it's that one word you say, because it's always the right answer. Anybody? Hey, Jesus. Jesus. Right? Because Isaiah's not done here. And what, what it says in the next few verses, and this is where the hope of the prophets comes, it says in 13, and though a tenth remains in the land, it will be again laid waste. But as the terebinth and an oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. That while Israel is falling over and over and over again, there is already being communicated a hope that one day, a seed in, in Israel's way of going about naked and trying to like just do all the things to get people to listen, when it looks like it is not worth it, when it looks like nothing is going to happen, when it looks like it is all for nothing, God says, keep confronting, keep going, because there will be a seed, a holy seed. It will be a stump in the land, and again, it will bring new life. And here is where we pick up with Jesus. But I don't know if it's all different. Because see, Jesus is still a prophet, Jesus actually is the culmination of all the prophets. But certain ways that the way Jesus goes about things is different. But he still is here to confront. And I don't want us to miss that. We should feel confronted by Jesus. In athletics, the more you move up, like the, every, you know, from youth all the way to professional, each level has different ways of preparing for games and learning from games. And the technology increases, and usually by the time, it depends on the sport, but like something like American football for the longest time, even in high school, they would do what's called film. They would watch the other team, they would watch their own after the game. Uh, I remember on the bus home when I was playing with a team in New York, and it was my first game, and I had a mistake on the first goal, uh, and our, <laughs> our coach was a horrible person. Um, but he would take, I mean, you get out of the locker room. I mean, he's, yeah, anyways, I don't need to talk about him. Um, but we get on the bus. Like, there's no time to, like, step out of the game and be like, oh, you know, we played well. We had these moments. You know, we tie the game. Like, things are okay. There was no time, and all of a sudden, he's popping in the DVD into the bus, and on the way home, he's just going through game. And he's just looking at every play. I mean, he's literally pausing at every 12 seconds at every little mistake that was made and just like berating us individually. Like the subs were getting yelled, like people who didn't even get into the game, he was yelling at on the bus. And we did this for like three hours on the bus the entire time. Now, part of that, while it's completely demoralizing, is that the reason you do film, the reason you look back at things and you look at every little moment is because you actually get a larger perspective of what's going on you can see that it wasn't just this isolated mistake, but it was these nine mistakes that led up to this one thing. Nine isolated mistakes, but they're all together, right? And you can see the great things going on, and you can actually learn from it differently because you see those other things happening because in the game, when you're playing, you're right here. You don't see the entire thing going on. And in that, though our coach is a horrible person, I've had a lot of amazing coaches, him confronting us was actually an invitation to transformation, Looking at game film, looking back at what we've done is a way that we can grow and learn from our mistakes. I remember going through uh, 
curriculum called Faith Walking. Um, some of the stuff you guys might be familiar with, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. Some of you have done Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Emotionally Healthy Relationships. There's a whole other set that Caitlin and I have gone to through called Faith Walking. And in that, they talk about transformational conversations. And that we as followers of Jesus, we as people can grow in having a higher pain tolerance to hear about ourselves, to hear about our true selves, to hear how we show up to other people, to hear about our shortcomings, to hear about our strengths. I mean, you go down the list, down the list, down the list. But one of the ways to grow in this is after something has happened, after a conversation with someone, maybe something didn't go well, is to actually go back and not just say, hey, I'm sorry that went bad, but to say, hey, I'm sorry I said that. Would you mind telling me how that made you feel? Because if not, we can usually just brush things off like, hey, I'm sorry, right? We actually don't ever learn from them and they just repeat. Well, vulnerability time, we're in the trust tree, right? Um, in my marriage, one of the constant challenges for me is my tone of voice. That if I am stressed and displeased and out, just checked out and just removed and like not pressing in and not watching my tone, I can be very short. I can just have quick responses that it can be very demeaning. And it's just like my entire default in so many ways. And it's kind of been my entire life in some ways. I remember one time, and Caitlin starts saying these things, like, I don't like the way you're saying that. Why do you have to say it that way? And it makes her feel a certain way. And I remember the time I finally said, how did that make you feel? And she said, it makes you feel, it makes me feel like you don't love me. So that means that every time that I have a tone of voice thing, my wife does not feel loved by me. When in my mind, I'm just... I'm just Ryan, right? But that is so confronting. The reason we don't ask those things is because we don't want to know those things because it's painful. I don't want to know how bad of a person I am. I don't want to know how, fall, how short I fall in relationships. I, I never want to hear that. But I believe that that confrontation is an invitation to transformation. It's an invitation for me to hear that and say, Caitlin, I am so sorry. I do not know how to fix this overnight, but I don't want you not feeling loved by me. Like, I want to do better. Can you help me? And then you actually have, a, you move forward in ways. Caitlin will tell you right now, like, we are always working through this. I have not arrived. Uh, but it, the idea to actually be open to confrontation, believe in an invitation to transformation. And here's where I'm going with this. There were two young fish swimming in the sea. And as they're swimming along, an older fish swims above them in the opposite direction, and he says, hey, how's the water down there? The little fish just keeps swimming. They go a little bit further, and one looks over to the other and goes, what is water? And I think this sums up who we can be as followers of Jesus in culture. And even as you're here right now, and you don't know if you're a follower of Jesus, or you're checking out faith or church or whatever it is, ultimately what I'm saying is that we are swimming in water, and oftentimes we don't even recognize it. We will naturally swim drown, downstream with the current. We will swim downstream of the ever-changing culture that we find ourselves in. The moral compass will continue to change. The ethical compass will continue to change. The ways in which we're supposed to show up as people, as humans, all put together and having things figured out, and having all the answers. And, I mean, you just go down the list, and on, and on, and on. We are swimming in waters, and oftentimes we don't even recognize it. And usually what needs to happen is someone needs to ask us, how's the water down there? For us to even realize that we're actually swimming in it. Jesus shows up as so many things, and one of them is a prophet. 
I love how Mark captures some of this. Um, Mark chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. He says this in the middle of a teaching. He told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Have you heard that somewhere? Jesus so many times quotes the prophets. Jesus quotes those that were confronting everybody. That people kept on the margins, that kept, people kept on the outside, that people pushed away, that people oppressed, that people eventually killed. And this was in the middle of a larger teaching. You've probably heard it before, and I don't know what mind frame you're coming from in it, but Mark chapter 4, verse 2 through 9, he taught them, he taught them many things by parables, and his, his teaching said, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell among the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and, the withered, uh, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. I know a lot of times growing up, I'd hear this as like, I'm the farmer and I got to go scatter seed and I got to preach the gospel and share the good news with everybody and I got to do this and that and this and I got to make sure like, oh, I'm not the rocky soil and oh, I got to make sure there's no thorns around here. I got to do all these things. But I would propose that God is the farmer. We propose that, that God is the one doing the work of spreading the seed, spreading good news, spreading everything that he is, perfect beauty and goodness and love. And that we are the path or the soil or the field that it's being spread on. But he says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. See, I don't think the call to participate in the kingdom of God is to have all of it figured out. It is, it is not even to just do this thing of, where am I? Am I the rocky place? Am I where, the, uh, where I'm going to get scorched? Am I, you know, where the, the seed is going to... He is just spreading the seed, and our job is that the call to us is to have eyes and ears. Eyes to see what God is up to and ears to hear what God is up to. That is going to confront us. Because oftentimes what starts to happen is we say things like, I love Jesus, I'm following Jesus, I am a disciple to Jesus, but I don't want to stop sleeping with so-and-so, who I am not married to. I will follow Jesus, but man, I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure my business is going to thrive. I will give everything. God, send me. But make sure it's not somewhere where I don't have comfort and a roof over my head. Jesus, I will give you everything. But we continue to accumulate everything we can to have security here right now in this moment. Right? Like everything we're saying yes to Jesus, going back to that song, there is a confrontation that has to take place for us to actually be open to it happening. And we're confronted 
Because God's kingdom is already moving. God is already spreading seed. God is already doing what God is doing. God is doing what he's been doing through the prophets. God is now doing what he's been doing through Jesus. But the good news in that is that we are not living up to what the prophets are proclaiming and trying to find a way there. We have now entered or been made available a relationship with Jesus where we are now transformed from the inside out. That saying yes over and over again is a journey and a long process and to have ears to hear and to have eyes to see Transformation is happening on the inside. So with every single confrontation that we experience, it's an invitation to transformation because we have a choice to say yes or no in every single moment that Jesus calls us to or commands us to. And every time that happens, we are transformed more and more and more and more into his image. And things that separate us from God will fall off and they will fall off and they will fall off. This is why you can never look at someone else's journey with Jesus and say they are or are not. Your call, my call, our call is for us to have ears to hear and eyes to see. In a culture that tells us to have it all under control, Jesus confronts us with, do not worry about tomorrow. In a culture that rates you by the car you drive or the home you live in, Jesus confronts us with, do not store up treasures on earth. In a culture that tells you that your needs matter most, Jesus confronts us with, care for those in distress In a culture that tells you to look out for number one, Jesus confronts with place God first. In a culture that encourages eye for an eye, Jesus confronts with love your enemies. In a culture that says to follow your heart, Jesus confronts with get rid of whatever causes you to sin. In a culture that says to hold a grudge at all costs, Jesus confronts with settle matters matters quickly with your adversary. In a culture that says someone else completes you, Jesus confronts with remain in me and I will remain in you. In a culture that says do whatever it takes to get ahead, Jesus confronts with do not exalt yourself. In a culture that says hold the mistakes of others above their head, Jesus confronts with forgive. In a culture that says your way is the right way, Jesus confronts with repent. Turn from the ways that are far from God. The list goes on and on and on. But what I want us to hear this morning is confrontation is an invitation to transformation. Jesus so lovingly has entered into life with us, has offered his spirit so that we could be transformed into more loving and whole and good people that are so loved by God that that will change the world. That will change the relationships you find yourself in. That'll change the work environment you find yourself in. That'll change the things that you desire that continue to fall short. That'll con- continue to change everything around you. Our vision of transforming lives, transforming everything is this. That we are first transformed within by every confrontation that Jesus brings to us. And therefore, we then transform. And then our job is just to enter into life with others enter into, as TJ mentioned, his work in education. Enter into the office that you show up to on Monday through Friday. Enter into the coffee shop that you sit down and open up your laptop. Enter into the home life that you have that may not be your favorite. Enter into parenting your kids. Enter into just every ordinary rhythm of life. Knowing that every confrontation that Jesus brings to you is an invitation to transformation. And I believe that if we can have eyes to see and ears to hear, if we can so simply just be open and turn to wonder of what God is doing, that we will have those ears and we will have those eyes. A few ways that we can do that. One is this. We can keep doing this. 
We can keep showing up as a large group of people to worship together, to sing together, to center ourselves around God, to actually give him space to confront us. We can open up scripture together, and I can do my best job, and each of us do our best job of trying to figure out what the heck it all means for all of us, and make it tangible and applicable that we can grab hold of the story that God has so graciously invited us into. We can also just slow down. When's the last time you paused or in silence and just created space for God to confront you? Because if you're anything like me, the greatest temptation is to go so fast in life that you never actually slow down enough to be confronted. And you're just swimming along. And you're just going the ways that you're going. And Jesus, as the prophet who is confronting us, doesn't even have the space to do so. One more way. Ask someone close to you who you are. Ask someone close to you how you show up. Ask someone close to you who's going to be honest with you. How am I doing? How am I doing in this or that? Whatever you want to ask them. But do you have space to actually hear from other people how you are doing? And then can you be open to the confrontation that's coming? So you believe Jesus' confrontation is an invitation to transformation.